The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this week. Uh, this week's show is an extension on last week's show, so if you haven't listened to that one first, today will probably make a little more sense if you go back and do that. Uh, today's show, we are continuing our kind of response to a listener's email about uh, whether he should consider using a fixed indexed annuity or one of these buffered ETFs that have been brought up on the show before, and we thought we would, uh, you know, help him with an educational uh, exercise in this, not that we uh, know enough about him nor any of you to r- recommend either of these. And with that said, just keep in mind what we're trying to do here is just our best at educating people on these things. We haven't entered into any type of financial planning agreement. We're not advising you on your investments. You should certainly be doing your own due diligence and determining if any of these things Um, are appropriate for your situation. Um, We don't have that kind of relationship with our listeners. So uh, take this for what it's intended to be, which is purely an educational exercise. And we're going to do our best to kind of give you some, some uh, pros and cons, maybe if you will, some of the, you know, distinct characteristics that are different between those two uh, things that were part of this person's question, those fixed indexed annuities and buffered ETFs, which, um, in certain regards, do seem to behave kind of similarly. So I understand why he had the question. So I'll bring in uh, Jim, who's uh, assembled a, a fair amount of, uh, you know, this uh, lists, I guess you might say, of uh, the pros and cons and the, how these each compare to one another to maybe help this person. And, and you, if you're interested, to determine, you know, how these might work in any particular circumstance. So, Jim, are you uh, ready to enlighten us? On, I am. We on, can this uh, stage. proceed forward with part two. We're going to try to limit this, folks, to two EDU shows. Obviously, with the complexity of the topic, 
uh, I could go into three or four. And I, I really don't want to. I'm going to try to limit this to two. If we have to bleed a little into next week's show, we will. But hopefully we can accomplish everything. Chris is on a very tight schedule. So I'm going to be uh, very, very pithy, as I usually am, and not uh, meander into squirrel and start going off and crazy and going down all these rabbit holes. And what I kind of want to do is get into the meat and potatoes of last week's question. If you remember, as a gentleman who wrote to us and he started researching buffered products. He felt they may fit into his portfolio. He didn't share with us how and in what sense. And he was saying, hey, as I was researching them, I found that they seem to be kind of similar to fixed indexed annuities. And should I just use an annuity or should I use one of these buffered products? So I thought, gee, that would be a good thing. Let's, let's kind of explain to people the difference between the two and the similarities, and then you can decide for your own if the fixed indexed annuity or the buffered product is the better offering. But we began with the first show last week trying to explain how we use these and where they fit into a portfolio. Because I always say, how can I or any financial advisor tell you to do with what to do with your money until I first know what your money has to do for you? So the intent is to first see where to borrow from a saying like that. Once you know the dollars you need to protect, we're going to assume, like we did in the first show, folks, you already figured that part out. So I wanted to explain to you where in our practice, we kind of use buffered products. And as you saw, there's really only two narrow slivers where we generally use these buffered products. There can be other times that they can be used that would be appropriate for you or someone else listening. But in our practice, we kind of use them in two narrow focused areas. We think they fit well and work well there. It's not to say we wouldn't entertain using them in another area if a client so desired, or if we came across a, a particular client whose assets were helping them manage, and they have a unique situation that lends itself to these buffered style products. But for the most part, we use them in those two areas. Today, I want to just kind of jump into the meat of the gentleman's question. We're not going to explain in great detail the buffered products because we've done that on previous shows, as well as fixed indexed annuities. We have talked about them on previous shows. And I will say January, excuse me, June is National Annuity Awareness Month once again. And if you remember, Chris, last June, we dedicated a lot of our shows in June of last year to annuities. I will most likely do the same thing this coming June, dedicate a lot of June's shows to annuities, minus Chris's Social Security questions, which we always do. And during one of those shows, maybe I will take a deeper dive into fixed indexed annuities, which were the annuities of question that this gentleman had. So I'm going to forsake getting deep into the nuances of FIAs for now. He didn't ask us, Chris, to explain the nuances. He asked us, where would I decide or how should I decide which buffered style product to use? The brokerage ETF or the annuity, fixed indexed annuity. Okay, so that said, on the brokerage side, there is also a product we have spoken about and used called a unit investment trust. I'm just giving it a shout out. We are not going to talk about them today, but we do use 
products like that at my practice, Buffered UITs. Maybe we will dedicate a show to them and explain to you uh, where we use a UIT over a Buffered ETF. But since UITs are not available by you to purchase without an intermediary, I'm not going to get into them. But let's just say they work very, very similar to a buffered ETF. They're, they're kissing cousins. They're kissing first cousins. That's how close they are. Ew. But <laughs> Don't make me laugh with a you. <laughs> you know people heard that, right? Because oh, I yeah. heard it. Oh, yeah. I meant it to be oh, heard. Oh, okay. I didn't know you meant it to be heard. Can you turn your volume up a little, too? I, can, I can't oh, hear sure. you again. Yeah, go ahead. But um, anyways, yes, they're, they're kissing first cousins, folks. But we're only going to concentrate on the ETF side. On the annuity side, there is what I'd like to affectionately call the illegitimate child of a one-night stand between a fixed-indexed annuity and a variable annuity. And that's called a RILA, Registered Index Linked Annuity. Like the UIT, I'm going to give it a shout-out, but we're not going to get deep into it. But I will say, because because I hinted on the previous show, Arila literally is a cross between a fixed-indexed annuity and a variable annuity. In the fixed-indexed annuity, the buffer, the downside protection in a fixed-indexed annuity is a contractual zero. You will never earn less than zero. You won't lose money. In fact, when you buy a fixed-indexed annuity, they tell you this is not a security. Your money is never invested, and it's not at risk from market fluctuations. It's at other types of risk, which we'll get into, but not market risk. The RILA has a zero option in it. So there's kind of the, the genes, if you will, of the fixed-indexed annuity in this wild one-night stand between a fixed-indexed annuity and a variable annuity. And you can choose to have that type of zero potential loss, never going to earn less than zero. Of course, the upside is capped and restricted on a RILA, just as it is in a fixed-indexed annuity, just as it is in the buffered ETF. But the RILA also offers a variable investment component where very, very similar to the buffered ETFs, they come with a 10% downside buffer. That's the RILA now. So your money gets uh, not technically invested. It gets put in the same option strategy as a buffered ETF. But the um, insurance company says, hey, we're going to structure this to protect the first 10% loss in a reference asset. It's usually always the S&P 500. It can be other indexes, though. Very similar to the ETF we explained to you. And you are protected from the first 10% loss. Anything beyond 10% you eat. It's all yours. You assume the loss below 10. Most RILAs that I have seen have just a 10% buffer. As you know, buffered ETFs, you can get a 10, you can get a 15, you can get a 20, you can get a 25, and you can get a 30. Maybe not from the same provider, but there are multiple providers out there where you can find different 
buffered levels. Most Rylas are just a 10% buffer. Other than that, they work very, very similar to the ETF on a Rylas strategy. Rylas will also have what is called a floor. And this is a little unique. The floor guarantees you a maximum loss. Remember, in a buffer, whether it's a buffered ETF, Chris, or a buffered Ryla annuity, you're only protected up to the buffer, right? Correct. Sorry, I, my button was off. <laughs> oh, that's fine. You're only protected up to there. So your loss could be technically unlimited after the buffer. The market can keep dropping. You're only protected up to the buffer. Rylas will offer a floor. And on that one, the insurance company eats all the loss below the floor. The floor literally locks in your loss. So you assume most Rylas have a 10% floor or a 10% barrier. And you, excuse me, buffer. And you choose which one you want when you buy it. And you don't have to put all your premium dollars into one or the other. You can put it in 50, 50, 40, 40, uh, 40, 40, um, 60, 40, 70, 30, doesn't matter. Any dollars you put in the floor option, generally you eat the first 10% loss, nothing else beyond that. So that's the Ryla. It's about as deep as I want to get into it because maybe we'll cover it deeper in June when I get more into annuities. We're not going to cover it today. I just wanted to reference it to acknowledge it existed. As you guys do your own due diligence and decide if you want a brokerage product or if you want an insurance product, it's going to be important for you to know on the insurance side, it's not just fixed indexed annuities, you have RILAs. And on the brokerage side, it's not just ETFs, you do have UITs. But for you do-it-yourselfers, you're probably going to limit yourself to the ETFs because you would need uh, an advisor or a a broker to put you in a UIT. Okay, so let's just kind of dive into pros and cons. This is a list I put together It is by no means inclusive of every potential pro and every potential con of these products as you try to decide which one to use. Now, I'm assuming you've made a decision to use them. Please, 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 please do not just run out and start purchasing these because they're the the shiny new toy on the block, for lack of a better term. Gee, I heard Jim talk about these, and I've seen a lot in the news about these or in the the blogs that I read. I'm going to go buy one. Don't do that. Make sure they fit in what you're doing. Make sure you have a good understanding of how they work and where they fit. That's something I just want to say before we get any deeper. I'm going to make every attempt to be impartial, And I'm going to make every attempt to to cover some of the main pros and cons of each strategy. So you've decided you need a buffered product. You understand how it fits into your portfolio. Now you're trying to decide, gosh, do I want a brokerage ETF or a fixed indexed annuity on the insurance side? Well, one of the big things to first recognize is the fixed indexed annuity, unlike the illegitimate child 
Ryla, you're never going to lose more than zero. Your downside buffer is zero. It's not a 10%, 20%, a 30% buffer. It's 100% essentially. You'll never lose or have a loss of principle, if you will, because the reference asset you are trying to track, it's most of the S&P 500, but not all, drops. You will never drop. But Chris, what do you think if you are assuming no risk, is the insurance company going to give you all of the return? Well, that would seem glorious, but not practical, right? That's getting something for nothing. And uh, that doesn't generally happen. It no. won't in this case either. As everyone knows, because we've had questions on it, one very good question from a listener who said, hey, uh, you, you talk about these products as having a cap and fees, and he pointed out, he says, isn't the true cost of these, though, the, the cap you're giving up or the dividends you're giving up and things like that? So he was kind of onto it and understood these products, whether it's the annuity or the buffered brokerage product, the ETF, do have a quote-unquote cost. And the cost is they can't give you protection on the downside and 100% of the upside. It's impossible to do inside a fixed indexed annuity because you don't assume any loss. So they have to put an option strategy together that wipes out all loss. That's very expensive. That forces the insurance company to sell a lot of the upside in the reference asset. For today's discussion, we're just going to assume the S&P 500 is the reference asset of both the insurance product and the brokerage product in question. The insurance company will have to sell a tremendous amount of the upside in the S&P to buy the put strategy that's going to give the full protection on the downside. So the caps on these relative to the upside in a 10% buffer, 20% buffer, or 30% buffer are greatly curtailed. So do keep that in mind. You're going to use a fixed indexed annuity if you want that 100% guarantee that if my reference asset, the S&P 500, is down, I lose nothing. I'm not willing to accept any potential loss. That's where you would use a fixed indexed annuity. And it means having to give up a significant amount of the upside to get that. Okay. And one, I guess one other caveat since we're mentioning this, and this is why, why it gets sometimes confusing on which one to choose. I know of one carrier right now, Chris, that came out two months ago. I say carrier, that's an insurance company, I apologize. One asset manager that came out just about two months ago now with their own version of a buffered ETF with a 100% buffer. No downside on it. Very similar, obviously, to the fixed indexed annuity where that is the standard 
zero loss potential, 100% buffer. That's what sets fixed indexed annuities apart from their variable annuity brethren. Well, the brokerage industry has come out with their own version of that. So you can buy again. They go on sale every month. So you can buy a January, February, March, April, May, June, whatever month you, you purchase it. And it will give you 100% downside protection to the S&P for the 12-month period that you have to hold it. But the upside, as you can well imagine, is greatly curtailed compared to the more traditional buffered ETFs that give you a 10 15, 20, 25, 30% downside buffer. So I did want to make reference, Chris, that now both the ETFs and the annuities come with the potential for the 100% protection. But annuities, that's what they're known for. Mm -hmm. Buffered ETFs, there's only one provider right now that I know of offering them. Okay, so what are some of the pros on the annuities? I'm going to lead with the annuities because annuities get a lot of bad reps. And I want to give them credit where credit is due. And by annuities, I'm talking fixed indexed annuities. Chris and I are certainly not talking about uh, income annuities that we favor, SPIAs they go by, single premium media annuity, that play a big role in our process and theory on retirement planning. When you buy a fixed indexed annuity, you are buying an accumulation product. You're buying an annuity that you want to grow but you want 100% downside protection. You don't want any risk, but you want to try to grow your assets. You want your cake and eat it too. And the insurance company is trying to, trying to do that. They're going to not quite let you eat the whole cake, but they're going to get close to, to doing that. They're going to say, hey, yeah, we'll give you some growth potential, but we will give you an explicit guarantee that you won't lose on the downside. So that to me is a pro, Chris. It has a contractual guarantee that you will not lose in that product tied to the reference asset. Now, some fixed index annuities, we'll talk about this in June, come with a lot of options you can put on. They're called riders, and those cost money, and you have to pay that fee every year. And if you do, you can then lose if you got 0% credit because the S&P 500 was down anything, down one-tenth of 1%, you lose nothing. Or if it's down 50%, you lose nothing. But if the S&P is down, you get zero. However, if you bought some riders, you might be down one, one and a half, two percent, depending on what riders you bought and how much they're costing you. So the downside protection of a fixed index annuity is tied to the market, not to any options you put on. Does that make sense, Chris? Yeah, I think so, so far. Yeah. Perfect. So that's, that's a pro, I think you would say, Chris, a contractual guarantee, the insurance company, if the option strategies blow up, no pun intended, and they don't quite mature the way they were supposed to, and a loss has occurred, which is possible, the insurance company will make good on their contractual guarantee that you will lose nothing. Okay, so that, I think, is a pro. A fixed-indexed annuity comes with just a few 
invest, I don't want to say investments because it's not investments, a few indexing options for you to choose from. They might let you index to the S&P 500. I've seen some let you index to the price change of gold. Others let you index to the Dow or the NASDAQ, but they only give you a handful. I've seen maybe two, three, four, five choices max. I put that in the pro column and I put it in the negative column. (laughs) Some people, Chris, just are not into this and can't make decisions and too many choices can confuse them. Mm -hmm. Paralysis by analysis. And that's one reason a lot of people feel 401ks should have very limited choices. They feel that is a strength. You who are listening to this podcast, you're scratching your head on that because you guys are into this. But I'm telling you, this is, anic- this is not even anecdotal. This is just me making up a number. But I tell you, 80, 90% of the population could give a damn about investing and don't, don't look at it and are confused. Would you agree? Yeah, I think most people just don't want to pay that much attention to it. Um, just lack of interest, I guess, or it just gets too confusing. And, and that is one reason why DOL actually favors from the plan administrators for employer plans um, to keep it simple from a fiduciary standpoint that they don't want things to be overly complicated for the participants, which is which leads to this limited menu of options inside your 401k. There is, there is an upside to that. You know, some people complain there's not enough choices in there, but uh, for the vast majority of people, they actually feel more comfortable with fewer choices in there. Okay. The annuity is tax-deferred. Now, that's, that, that could be a negative, too, as you'll see. Let's make a few things clear. Inside an IRA, the point is moot. Yep. Because the IRA already has the tax deferral. So I'm specifically talking of what the industry calls a non-qualified annuity. And in the case of the Buffered Brokerage ETF, I'm talking about an ETF owned not in your IRA, but in a taxable brokerage account. Let's make that clear. So inside a taxable brokerage account, if you had an... Now, it wouldn't be right inside your Vanguard taxable brokerage account. You'd have to move the money to the annuity. But if you opened a annuity from assets in your brokerage account... The insurance company will qualify that as a non-qualified, they'll classify that rather, as a non-qualified annuity, which means it has no special wrapper, no IRA wrapper around it. That's all it means. Well, an annuity is considered, technically speaking, a retirement account. So a retirement account count grows tax deferred. That could be a pro. How can it be a pro? We have seen instances where sometimes if people were to invest and start to receive more dividends or interest payouts, especially if they're trying to qualify for ACA Mm -hmm. premium tax credits, or they're trying to do Roth conversions and they want to maximize the ability to do conversions, or they're worried about Irma for a particular reason, and just a dollar over an Irma bracket can screw everything up. 
We have seen people temporarily move money into an annuity during that time period where a dollar more is going to screw things up. Because inside the annuity, it's tax deferred. So I wanted to put that in the pro. As you'll see, it can also be a con when we move on later. But I'll put that in the pro category, Chris, because it can aid with mm-hmm. some tax planning. Yep. Okay. Here's another good thing with a fixed indexed annuity, as opposed to, say, a MIGA annuity, which we talk about a lot on this show and tend to favor. A MIGA, when it matures, MIGA is multi-year guaranteed annuity. Let's say you bought a three-year, four-year, five-year MIGA. When it matures, you're generally going to be given a few choices. Eight times out of 10, maybe seven times out of 10. So 70 to 80% of the time, the insurance company is going to say, if you don't close this annuity and move your money within 30 days, we are going to automatically, as a service to you, of course, not that they're trying to keep your money, we are going to automatically enroll you in another three, four, or five-year MIGA, but based on whatever current interest rates are at that time. So they tend not to be a liquid pool. That's where I'm going with this, folks, at maturity. you got to kind of move them. Now, there are a few MIGAs out there who don't do that. And they let you keep it, and it stays liquid, but at much lower interest rates than you could get in a different MIGA. I put that in the pro category, though, for fixed indexed annuities. All of them just become a liquid annuity. They do not, the insurance company, does not automatically enroll you again into another penalty period. When we get to the cons in a second, you'll see annuities come with very substantial penalty periods, especially fixed indexed annuities. So once it matures... A pro to me, Chris, is it becomes a liquid annuity. You can get money out at any time. Does that make sense? Yes, that's key. Okay. Very similar to buffered products, most fixed indexed annuities only require you to hold a index option. Let's say, remember I said they can come with just a few limited choices. So let's say you were in the S&P index option. After 12 months, most of them come with a 12-month period. It's called a point-to-point. Most are 12 months. Some can be longer. But when that 12-month period matures, you are allowed to choose a different indexing option. So let's say you were in the S&P because you thought everything was going to be good, Now you think everything's going to hell in a handbasket and your annuity offers, say, um, a reference asset of gold and you think, I'm going to be in gold for this period. You can move from the S&P to the gold option and it's not considered a sale and taxable to you because it's within the annuity wrapper. 
If you had, everybody knows if you had an investment in a brokerage house and you sold the S&P and you went and bought gold, you may have to pay taxes on that sale. I don't want to say you will pay taxes. You might be selling it at a loss or you might be in a cap gain uh, situation where you don't have to pay capital gains taxes. But for the most part, that might be a taxable issue. Inside an annuity, I had to put that in the pro column. It can move from one indexing mm-hmm. option to another without being considered a taxable gain. Why? It's in the annuity wrapper. Yep. Fairly straightforward there. Mm-hmm. When annuities mature, so if you have a fixed indexed annuity, I told you it remains liquid. As you'll see when I get to the cons in a second, there's a caveat to that. Oh, it's a liquid. So for every pro, there's a con, it seems. But right now, let's just say you have a liquid fixed indexed annuity, but you like the annuity at another company. It's got something in it you like better. You're allowed to move one annuity to another in a tax-free transaction called a 1035 exchange. So that's a pro. You don't have to liquidate the annuity and pay taxes on it to buy another annuity. If you really like annuities, and we're not passing judgment, there's a lot of people who like these fixed indexed annuities. If they're your forte, you can move from one to the other. Another thing that is a pro with fixed in, well, all annuities, not just fixed indexed annuities, is even though they are considered a retirement account, there's no required minimum distributions, at least while you're alive. Mm-hmm. There will be when people inherit it, but at least while you're alive, there's no required minimum distribution rules. So, Chris, I put that in the pro as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think that you know that just gives you more flexibility to make your own choices when you want to take the money out. So that is definitely a pro. Absolutely. Okay, let's list a couple of cons. And before anybody thinks I'm raining on Chris's parade, he is not an annuity expert in the office. He's a Social Security expert. So I'm not hitting him with things like I normally do because he just doesn't know these products. He knows a lot about it. He probably knows more than he thinks he does. And if you want, Chris, I'll I'll throw things at you, but um, I don't want to seem like I'm the only one talking, though. No, when I need a break, I can spout out a few words if you want me to. It's all good. Okay. Well, I could, you know, you, Jim spends a whole lot more time looking into these and investigating them, et cetera, and, and uh, that's not my task. That's not my role here, so I don't do that. But if that became my role, I could certainly go and dive into it and, and do it as well. So I know enough at this point to be uh, dangerous, if you will. So I always run all the annuity questions by uh, Jim and uh, Andrew in combination usually. And, um, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. Okay. How about the cons of the fixed indexed annuity for a not only a buffered strategy, but uh, for in, in general if you're considering them? And uh, there's cons, just like there are cons with the ETFs that we'll get to. Okay, I kept saying they're considered a retirement account. Well, that can be a con. Even though there's no RMDs, there is a 10% early withdrawal penalty if you take money out of an annuity before 59 and a half. Don't lose sight of that, folks. Income always comes out of an annuity not capital gain. When you buy a buffered ETF, it's always capital gain. When you buy your buffer protection inside an annuity wrapper, 
when you finally do take the income out, the interest out, it's going to be taxed to you as income. Mm-hmm. In fact, inside the annuity, it's specifically called income. Now, remember, we're not talking inside an IRA wrapper. So you have a taxable brokerage account. You move money into an annuity. While the money is inside the annuity, it does not earn a capital gain. It earns income. Even though you are tied to the S&P index, in my example I'm giving because it's the most common one, even though you are tied to the S&P index, you are never receiving any type of capital gain. You are only receiving income. Conversely, the Buffett ETF is the opposite, and I'll explain that when we get to it. Okay, and finally, being a retirement account, it's considered IRD, income with respect to a decedent. So when you, IRD in the eyes of the IRS, IRS, the Internal Revenue Code has a section called IRD, income with respect to a decedent. It is essentially the way the government will treat what they feel is income that has not been taxed to you yet, and you went and died before paying taxes on it. What is the treatment, Chris, of IRD at someone's death that makes it not really very attractive? Well, the one key trigger there is there's no step up in basis like you would experience if you were in the capital gains world. Absolutely. So when you purchase money from a brokerage account, inside an IRA, it's a moot point. We're talking about brokerage accounts today. You move brokerage assets into one of these annuities because you want that protection and you're willing to accept whatever the cap rates are. It starts growing and you're thinking, oh, great. But then you up and die. There's no step up that you would have had if you had a brokerage asset. Instead, whoever inherits it will have to pay taxes on the gain. All retirement accounts and annuities are considered retirement accounts have no step up in basis because they are considered IRD, income with respect to a decedent. So I had to put that in the negative column. Another negative, I told you a pro of the annuities, you have a contractual guarantee by the insurance company, you will never lose, even if the option strategy blows up and doesn't quite work out the way they intended But you have a different type of risk, and that's counterparty risk. Money that goes into an annuity, a fixed-indexed annuity, variable annuity is different. Same thing with the RILA, that little illegitimate child. But a fixed annuity, the money becomes an asset of the insurance company. It goes into their general account. So that's why states offer, quote-unquote, guarantee accounts or guarantee funds that will back annuities. Most back it to the tune of two hundred and fifty to $300,000. But those guarantee accounts, the states will tell you, are not technically guaranteed. This is the weirdest name to call an account that's not guaranteed. Let's call it the guarantee account. 
the guarantee account isn't guaranteed. The state is saying they could theoretically, if a bunch of insurance companies went bankrupt at the same time, we're not going to be able to pay everybody everything they're owed. But uh, honestly, I think the chances of that happening are slim, but I have to put out there that that theoretically could happen. Anyways, that's why state guarantee accounts exist, because you have counterparty risk. Your money is not being held in isolation at a brokerage house that is earmarked for you and is not an asset of the custodian, like all you Vanguardians and Schwabians and T. Ropricians and all these, these companies that you are using to hold your assets and investments. They're not an asset of Vanguard or Schwab or T. Price or TD Ameritrade. They're yours. Very similar to variable annuities. Variable annuities are not an asset of the insurance company. They're yours. Inside a fixed indexed annuity, it's the insurance companies. So you have to put that in the negative column, Chris. Even though most states protect it with the quote-unquote guarantee account, you do have to, in my opinion, put that in the negative column if something were to happen. Fees and expenses with fixed indexed annuities can be high. Fees and expenses with buffered ETFs can be high. I'm not picking on them. You'll see in a second. So just kind of know what you're getting into. They're cloudy. They're complex. Same with buffered ETFs. So do some due diligence. Make sure you truly understand what it's going to cost you for the annuity. Now, as far as a fixed indexed annuity goes, because it's fixed, unless you add an option or two to it, the cost of the annuity is going to be baked in to the contractual guarantees, otherwise known as the cap rate. So you're really going to have to, to figure out what you're truly paying. You might want to con- um, compare multiple fixed indexed annuities from multiple insurance companies to see who's offering the better cap rates. So do pay attention to that. Also, again, as I said with counterparty risk, if you're comparing multiple annuities, you have to compare the, the financial strength and the, the books and finances and, and uh, surplus accounts of each annuity so you're comparing an apple to an apple and not an apple to an orange. Comparing an A-plus, very well-managed balance sheet insurance company to some Bermuda-based private equity-owned B-rated insurance company is an apple to an orange. So it gets a little complex with annuities because of all these nuances, Chris. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, with the annuity, you cannot add more money to it like you could a traditional brokerage account. It's rather restrictive. You're also stuck with what the insurance company gives you because these products are illiquid. They have a penalty period, and that alone, besides the fact that they're always taxed as income, not a capital gain inside a non-IRA account, and the fact that they have no step-up in basis, throw one more thing on top of them, you can start to see why you have to be careful if you're using these products, and that is they have a penalty period. Even though your account 
goes annual point to point. So in other words, you can choose, in my hypothetical example, between the gold or the NASDAQ or the S&P, and you only have to hold that for 12 months, and then you'll get whatever the index earned up to the cap. And if it lost money, you get zero. You don't lose anything. That's done annually. But the annuity itself, folks, has to be held for generally 5 to 10 years. That's what most new fixed index annuities have. Years ago, when these products were coming out and were being so inappropriately sold and poorly regulated, I saw once, Chris, an 18-year penalty period annuity that a 70-something-year-old purchased. I can't remember how old she was. This is going back years. She was in her 70s, had just purchased it two years earlier. And it had an 18-year penalty period. That's abhorrent. But today, most will come with a 5- to 10-year penalty period. That, to me, is a negative. You have to really be planning well to figure out you can lock your money up for that length of time. You can get your money out if you had to, but you would pay a steep penalty. And they'll disclose to you, most start at 9% and drop maybe to 7%, 6% over the life, over that 5 to 10 year period. So the penalties can be fairly steep and others throw a market value adjustment on top of it. Meaning if interest rates went up during the time you held it, you're going to lose even more money because the value of the annuity dropped. Conversely, if interest rates go down, the market value adjustment might work in your favor and you'll actually be paid a little extra money minus the penalty by the insurance company because the bonds that they bought to back your annuity actually went up in value. So the market value adjustment puts interest rate risk on your shoulders if you want to get out of this product. Because you didn't time it right, and you're like, oh, God, I bought this for 10 years. It's six years. I need this money. Now, most will allow you to take 10% out each year. Some, it's 5%. Some let you accrue 10% a year for three years until you max out at 30%, and then you can take that 30% out at any time. So they're all different but they have very limited liquidity. And Chris, I think you would agree. I should put that in the negative. Yeah, because anything that restricts what you're trying to do and your ability to react to changes in your life, that's a negative. It's a positive when you have the flexibility and um, access to what you need to do when you need to do it. Okay. All righty, final negative, and there's plenty more negatives, and there's going to be plenty more positives. I'm just trying to give you some. Keep that in mind. The final one that I have on here, remember I told you folks, a pro on these is when they mature, they let you keep the annuity open. What I didn't share, because I wanted to save it till we got to the con, do you think, Chris, the insurance company wants these people or whoever purchases them to keep this annuity open and have complete liquidity that at any time they can call the insurance company and take money out? No, much like a a bank. And I'm not saying insurance companies are just like banks, but much like a bank, when you put money into that institution, they're trying to do stuff with it. 
And so they like to do things and, and make plans knowing or being confident that the money's going to be there for a longer period of time. They prefer that. Insurance companies are the same way. What they're doing on the back end, they would like to have the money in there longer compared to shorter. Exactly. So what happens is at maturity, you can keep it liquid. But I have seen this time and time and time again. The interest credits, the cap rates that they are going to let you have drop. And they can drop even during the penalty period. That just negative just popped into my head right there. During the penalty period, they kind of got you by the Mm you-know-whats. You can't leave without paying a steep penalty. And the cap rates that you might have had when you purchased it may not continue, especially if interest rates drop while you're holding the annuity and stock market, stock market volatility drops. And I have seen that firsthand. Now, are they going to drop it the very next year? No. I have never seen an insurance company just all of a sudden turn around and drop it to near nothing the very next year. But I have seen insurance companies consistently drop the cap rates. But in defense of the insurance companies, it's because for a very long time, except for last year, we had been in a falling interest rate environment and minimal stock market volatility, except for COVID in last year, over the past 12 years or so, market volatility has been minimal, or if it existed at all, it was to the upside, and interest rates were steadily dropping. No one will deny that. So in defense of insurance companies, Chris, they had no choice but to drop the cap rates. Where I'm starting to get angry or disappointed, is they have not been increasing them on existing policies. Not brand new policies that they're looking for people to buy, Mm -hmm. but people who have a policy and have seen their cap rates drop justifiably for the reasons I explained. I would have thought I would start to see cap rates be going up, and they just don't seem to be going up up as quickly as they came down. Now, maybe that is an erroneous perception that I had, and I'm just not understanding things, but I just generally haven't seen them rising as quickly as they have been dropping. Remember, when you buy these annuities, you're locked in for that penalty period, and the insurance company reserves the right, just like brokered ETFs reserve the right to change the cap rates every 12 months. So does the insurance company. But in a brokered product, you can get out whenever the hell you want. In the ETF, excuse me, in the fixed indexed annuity, you can't. So you're stuck there. When the annuity finally matures and you can move your money, they want you to move your money. And the cap rates generally fall to the contractual minimums. So pay attention. If you were not thinking of keeping this product past the contractual minimums, or you were, excuse me, past the uh, penalty period, or you knew what the contractual minimums were, but this annuity is being positioned differently and you're perfectly fine with it. 
Other than that, just be prepared that, yes, this will be a liquid annuity in year five, in year seven, in year 10. But most likely, the cap rates that you're going to get on the various indexes is going to drop. Maybe not to the contractual minimums, but I have seen it consistently to feel pretty certain Mm -hmm. it's going to drop to the contractual minimum. So pay attention to what the contractual minimum is. Years ago, where I used to use these products because we couldn't get any type of interest anywhere, and the buffered brokered products didn't exist yet to the degree they do, the contractual minimums were 1%. Many annuities today still have that same 1% contractual minimum. But I know of one company that came out with an annuity with a contractual minimum of 285 And that's actually a little bit appealing now, Chris. And I would put that in the pro column. Because you know when this annuity matures in 5, 7, or 10 years, the worst you're going to get in interest is 2.85% interest. All fixed indexed annuities have an option where you can just put it in an interest-bearing account. You don't have to put it in an indexed account. The contractual minimum of the indexed account right now, excuse me, of the fixed account right now in this particular annuity is 2.85%. That's pretty good, Chris, in light of where interest rates were and could go again in the future Mm -hmm. to say, hey, the worst I can do even at maturity is 2.85% with a completely liquid product. But that's also a negative in the sense if you were hoping for those high cap rates, you're not going to get those. Those are going to drop. They don't want you to keep a liquid annuity. They're going to drop the cap rates lower than what a new annuity is paying to entice you to leave because they want you to lock your money up again. That allows them to feel comfortable investing it. If you have complete liquidity, they can't take much investment risk with those dollars or or bond duration, because most of your money is going in bonds, even though you don't see that. And they can't take that long bond duration, Chris, and they have to keep it in short bonds. And they need to make a little bit on the yield spread, so those cap rates drop really low to force you out. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Let's get to the brokerage ETFs then. Let's go to some quick pros on those. So when you buy a brokered ETF, a little bit different. Except for the brand new, not a brand new company, very old provider of these products, but brand new to them, they have a 100% floor with a very modest cap. It's not very high at all. It's less than 10%. But you get 100% protection on the downside. Outside of that one offering, most buffered products will come with a 10, 15, 20, 25, or 30% downside buffer. So far, so good? Yes. So what's a pro? There is no counterparty risk to an ETF like you have on the insurance company. The money does not become an asset of the asset manager. It's yours. It is held in a brokerage account. You just bought an investment. It's no different than you running out and buying any other type of ETF. The ETF you buy does not have claim to your dollars, they're managing your dollars, but you own an asset. You own the exchange-traded fund. Now, that fund can go belly up, yes, but if the fund company 
that's managing the asset, the, the custodian, rather, holding your asset goes belly up. Your asset, and we talked about this recently, we talked about SIPC protection, is there. It's protected. It's those, those dollars are yours. They're not the custodians, and they're not the asset managers. Now, I'll concede the asset manager has your dollars, and, and they could you know, run away with the pool boy to, to the south of France, but within reason, they're not doing that. You know. So it's no counterparty risk like it is with the insurance company where you freely give up the money. Does that make sense, Chris? I did not explain mm-hmm. that well. No, that, I think that makes sense. It's similar to buying or uh, holding other securities. They're, they're yours mm-hmm. and not subject to the uh, creditors of some other party. Perfect. There is no penalty period. Even during the hold, buffered ETFs have a 12-month hold. I have seen... UITs with longer holds and structured products with longer holds, but we're only talking about buffered ETFs. They're generally issued by the various companies offering them every month, January through December. And you only have to hold it from the day you buy it to the day it matures 12 months later. But you can sell it at any time. You can get out of it whenever you want. It's an ETF. You may not, or you definitely will not get, during the hold period, during the the 12-month period, if you will, it's going to act like a low beta version of an investment tracking whatever the reference index is. In this case, S&P 500 is a hypothetical. It would act like one of those low beta ETFs that you can buy. It's not going to go up as much as the market, go down as much as the market, but it's going to mimic the market. During that 12-month hold period, your ETF, buffered ETF, will be working very, very similar to uh, a low beta investment. But you can exit it whenever you want. You might not get all of the upside you could have got if you waited, and you might get more of the downside that you would have avoided if you didn't sell. But it's completely liquid. So keep that in mind. And if you did exit it, say you held it for the full 12 months, if you exited it, and let's just say there was a gain, that is treated as a long-term capital gain because you're going to hold it for a year or more. Because remember, you have to hold it for a year to get the guarantee anyways. So if you sold, it's always taxed you as a capital gain. It also gets a step up in basis at your death. And what if you didn't want to sell it? What if you wanted to hold it? Your gain, let's just assume there's a gain in this. So you bought a buffered product. Let's say it had a 15% cap to the S&P on the upside, significantly higher than fixed indexed annuities. Why? Because the buffered product, except for that one with the 100% buffer, we're not talking about that here. If you got a 10, 20, or 30% buffer, you assume a loss below those levels. But that means your cap rate is going to be significantly higher. So let's just say there's a 15% cap rate, Chris, and you put 100000 in and the market was up exactly $100,000. So you go and at the end of the one year, you have $115,000 in there now. Now, there will be a fee to the ETF. I concede that. They're about 07 
to about 0.85%, let's just say 1%. So you won't quite have 115000 There'll be a 1% fee coming out. So you might have, what, Chris, about 113500 somewhere mm-hmm. around there. Mm-hmm. But for the sake of argument, folks, let's just say 115 because it's a round number. Mm-hmm. If you hold it, it automatically renews. You only got to buy these things once. It automatically renews for another 12 months. 12 months of protection. You can exit it any time you want. But 12 months of protection automatically. You don't have to buy it again. It just stays there. Very similar to the fixed indexed annuity. It would just keep renewing each anniversary period, as I explained. However, your new protection amount automatically rises to the 115000 not to the 100000 you put in. The protection amount rises without you having to realize the capital gain first and mm-hmm. rebuy it. It like builds on itself. It builds on steps itself. Steps up, yeah. Yes. I kind of like that. That's a pro. Now, I concede the fixed indexed annuity has that as well their protection amount rises as well. I'm not taking that away from them. But you have that liquidity during that period to make up your mind. You don't have to wait 12 months. You don't have to wait 5, 7, or 10 years like you do with a fixed index annuity, first of all. You don't even have to wait the 12 months for this one-year hold to take place. You can get out whenever you want. But if you do hold it, your protection amount automatically rises and it's not considered a capital gain until you sell. And if you never sell and die, your beneficiaries get the step up in basis. Now, we don't recommend these as long-term holds. I don't think you need them as a long-term hold. So hopefully you will not die during whatever period you're using this product. But it's good to know if you were planning on using this product for three years, four years, five years, or one year, that if you do have to uh, get out, you can. But if you died while holding it, if there's a gain, you get the step up in basis because it's not IRD. So I'd have to put that in Mm -hmm. the pro category. Mm -hmm. Um, Step up in basis, I already explained that. Liquidity, I already explained that. You can sell at any time. No long-term commitment is the final pro that I have here. Unlike the annuity where you really have to figure out, okay, this is money that I need. And we do this a lot with MIGAS, Chris. I'm not throwing Mm -hmm. annuities under the bus. When we do a spending plan for go-go or for uh, minimum dignity floor delay period, we know what clients might need in year three, year four, year five. And we might buy a specific MIGA with that dollar amount in each MIGA. So in year three, one matures. In year four, one matures. So I'm not against holding periods. But when you start to get, and we don't go more than five years on Amiga. That's, that's the longest I want to lock client money up for. Even in a bond, if we're buying a tip or a treasury bill for our clients, we stay five years or less. When you're locking your money up for seven, ten, and hopefully not more than that years, it becomes difficult. Inside these products... You can buy it and hold it for as long as you want. And your protection amount just keeps rising with the markets, hopefully. 
and you can get out whenever you want as a capital gain. I like that no long-term commitment, Chris. So I put that in the pro category. You agree? I think so. Okay. So there are cons, though. Complex, expensive, and fees. Just like fixed index annuities. Mm -hmm. But unlike a fixed index annuity, where your fee is baked into the product, and to really figure out what the fee is, you got to compare multiple annuities from similarly rated, wow, I nailed that word, I usually don't, rated carriers, and to see who's offering the better interest rates, because the difference in rates, that's what you're paying. Inside the buffered annuity, they disclose to you, excuse me, inside the buffered ETF, right. they disclose to you the um, expense ratio. You see it. It's there. But they also have baked-in fees as well. And it's all in the, the cap rates that mm -hmm. you're going to get. I have read the offering documents on these. It's confusing, but if you read it enough, you can really start to see how they figure everything out. And the point is, folks, most of them will operate, even with the baked-in fees, at about 70 basis points to 85 basis points. To be safe, I say one basis point. Just a nice round number. So they're technically expensive compared to an index fund that has about a 0.1 expense ratio or less. But they're an active management strategy, so they have to charge for that. But I have to put that in the negative. I'm not just going to throw annuities under the bus. I'll throw them under the bus. There is a cost. But nobody works for free. Neither do these people. So you can decide for yourself if the annuity fees or the, the buffered ETF fees are expensive or not. This is the big one. Well, actually, before I get, there's only two more I have. Complex. I'm going to answer that one first. That's not the big one. Just like an annuity, these are complex products. Do your own due diligence. If you're purchasing one of these directly as a do-it-yourselfer, Get a hold of the company who's offering the product. Talk to them. Go to their website first. Do all the research there. Ask for a copy of the offering document if you want to read it. But just kind of do your due diligence to get a feel for it. Same thing with annuities. They are complex. Make sure you just have a good feeling and an understanding. But the big one that I want to get to there are no contractual guarantees with a buffered product. Theoretically speaking, the options may not perform as hoped for. There's no guarantee they will. And if they don't perform as hoped for, you could lose more than you thought or actually make more than you thought. And I'm not being facetious on that. So do keep in mind that the contractual guarantee of an annuity are not in the, the, the offering document of these buffered products. That's the difference. If things go a little awry, the insurance company, if you buy one of their products, is standing there guaranteeing it with you know, their other resources, essentially. They've decided they'll, they'll make it right and hold up the promise, even if what they're doing with your money doesn't quite work out right, you don't get that with these buffered ETFs. Right. 
And I know Chris has to wrap up, so I was going to talk a little bit about a research report that Morningstar just literally came out with. Goodness, I think it was yesterday, as a matter of fact, Monday. Might have been Friday of last week, but I believe it was Monday. It goes into defined outcome. Buffered ETFs are called defined outcome products. Why? Just like the annuity, they're defining what the outcome is. They have grown in popularity. Morningstar wanted to come out with a research report on them. I'm going to encourage you to read. I'm going to give you the name of it in a second. You guys can Google it and look it up. You're going to have to give Morningstar a lot of information, and then they send you a link to download it. It's it's for free, but they, they want to know who you are and probably send you all sorts of marketing stuff. Couple of key takeaways, though, that that I found interesting, Chris. They pointed out that these products uh, have literally burst on the scene uh, over the the past few years. That in uh, 2018, 2018, there was, uh, where is it? Under 200 million in these products. And that's honestly, folks, because most didn't even exist. They were just coming out. Uh, If you go back a decade or so, these didn't even exist. About 2018, they said there were 200 million in them. Today, there's 22 billion in them. From 2018 to early 2023, there are now over 169 current buffered products that you can choose from, from a handful of carriers. This analysis uh, will tell you who those carriers are. Not all of them. They list them. The reason I'm mentioning this, Morningstar pointed out that in in a uh, direct quote in reference to last year, turbulent markets in recent years provided the perfect stage for defined outcome ETFs to shine. And these ETFs have walked the walk in 2022. And they do go into that. They worked. But they pointed out in all the ETFs that they analyzed for all the different holding periods, one did not perform. And people who held it lost more than they thought. Not much. It was a percentage or two more. It wasn't a massive loss. But Morningstar pointed out what I'm trying to point out. There is no contractual guarantee. So they say in this analysis, due diligence is very important. And they name the company that screwed up. And they don't have nice things to say about that company. And they attribute it solely to the managers. Didn't know what they were doing. But if you have a company whose managers truly understand options, Morningstar is saying these products work. Now, when you read them, because I told Chris about this just today before we recorded, I'm I'm not hesitant to tell you guys about it because you're smart. I'm disappointed in Morningstar's general outcome with them. They say, hey, if you really, in a nutshell... And you'll see that at the bottom under their conclusions on page 33 or 34. It's a long report, folks. They kind of say, look, they're expensive, relatively speaking, if to a pure S&P 500 index fund. Well, Chris, is that a fair comparison, an actively managed option strategy <laughs> to a passively managed ETF? 
Uh, no, that is not apples to apples by no. any means. But he is. They are right. They are expensive compared to an ETF. They question: Do you need this buffer protection? And they go back and show. That, and I really like that part. They go back to 1929 and show every single month rolling returns. And they give a breakdown, and I'm trying to do from memory because I don't have the report opened here. 17% of the time, the S&P is up more than 25%. But a third of the time, the S&P can be down up to 15%. I might have those numbers kind of wrong. But it was interesting as they walked through there, and they concluded that about a 20% or greater floor should protect you from most market corrections, not all, which is what we've been saying on the podcast. And most upside of the S&P is about 10 to 15% in most years, or even less than 10 in a handful, bigger than a handful of years. It was really interesting when you looked through that, and you could start to see, well, gee, I don't really need to worry about the fact that my cap might be at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16% on a 20 or 30% buffer. Maybe I don't need the 100% where I'm going to be capped at 8, 9, 10. Maybe taking a 20 or a 30 downside gives me, for most corrections, ample protection and still allows me to actually capture most of the upside minus dividends. And that was a big negative for Morningstar. Whether you have the insurance product or the ETF, no dividends. But we talked about that on other shows and how that's factored into the pricing of options. I was disappointed Morningstar didn't mention that when they were saying, hey, there's no dividends. They didn't point out, Chris, that that's reflected in the pricing of the options. So I kind of like the the depth. They talk about the option strategy Use it as a first step in your due diligence. I know of no such report for fixed indexed annuities. I concede. I used to use fixed indexed annuities. I haven't in years. I just don't see them fitting in anymore. But I don't want my opinions to cloud your judgment. If you think the annuities are superior, use those. If you think the buffered ETFs are superior, use those. I'm a believer, at least right now, where high interest rates, or relatively speaking, high interest rates and high volatility are making these products, it's like they're, they're, what do you call it, time in the sun or time on the stage or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. moment in the sun. Time to shine. Time to shine, whatever, moment in the sun. either one of those. Mm -hmm. I don't know if in a year or two or three we'll be using these anymore, Chris, right? We don't know that. Yeah, this is just an example of you just kind of to be paying attention and, and react to changing market conditions because something that was a very attractive choice one year might not be the same the next year. So don't get stuck in a rut and uh, think that, you know, if something was true one day, it'll be true for the rest of, you know, all time. That's not really how right. the market works. Okay, Chris has to run. So here's the name. I'm only going to say it once, folks, so slow it down. You're just going to Google Morningstar. And the name of their thing is called Defined Outcome ETF Primer. I think that'll pull it up. If not, it says a report on the merits and mechanics of defined outcome ETF strategies. Perfect. And it just came out, like I said, 
Monday or Friday. It's it's very very new. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna read that because uh, I really like morning I like Morning Star's stuff. It's really always chock full of good info. So uh, anybody interested in this, I think that's a good place to start with the primer from a, a reputable source that is Morning Star. Do so, you want me to text the link or email the link to you? Either one, I don't care. I'm not going to read it today, so well, I'm, go- I'm going to send it to you. Okay. Well, um, thanks to the listeners sent in this question. I think it really did prime uh, something that's hopefully educational for for people. Uh, if you this wasn't your uh, cup of tea, as they say, we'll be on to a new topic next week. Uh, don't know what that is yet, but uh, we'll mix it up so that we don't have the same stuff continuously. Uh, we really appreciate everybody listening, and we'll be back together with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saunier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 